been a month since the death of George Floyd, and even as our timelines fill up with outfits of the day, summer pics, and other such content, it's important to remember Black Lives Matter always. You're listening to Unsweet and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 21 of season 2. In today's episode, we speak to Iman Idel Barre about her experience with anti-blackness beginning at such a young age, racism found within the media, and how we can carry on the BLM movement beyond dinner table discussions. Hey, it's Danielle and Zaina, and welcome to Unsweetened and Unfiltered, the podcast where we elevate the voices of women by sharing their stories of struggle while also highlighting their success. We wanted to create a space for women to feel like they're not alone in whatever hardship they may be facing. Some conversations may be lighthearted, while others may touch upon taboo topics ranging from mental health to women's bodies and spiritual struggles, and we don't shy away from any of it. But our overall mission is to make every woman realize that she is not alone. We are all in this together, I promise. Our sole purpose is to build relationships, not barriers, between you and the woman who may need you. We're here to provide inspiration and to build courage. Tune in every Wednesday where we'll feature an insightful guest who will help us reach these goals. We laugh, we ugly cry, and we'll probably laugh some more. So plug in your headphones, grab your favorite cup of coffee or shea, and get ready to become a part of this unbreakable sisterhood. You are tuning into season two of Unsweetened and Unfiltered. You know, we just hit the six-month mark of 2020, and it's been a very rough couple of months. I know we still have the rest of the year, and inshallah things turn around, but aside of what's going on around the world that's, you know, impacting every single person, there are people that are still dealing with things and hardships behind closed doors and whatnot. You know, the other day, me and my friend, we went out for, we just grabbed lunch, and we were just catching up, and, you know, we were just kind of like looking at our lives and we're like we're 31 me and her are both 31 and we're like we're both struggling finding a job or finding a career but you know when you're young you assumed your life was going to be everything was going to be set in stone for you at 31 you're going to have a family you're going to have you're going to be married you're going to have the best career ever your life is going to be perfect and you're going to have the white picket fence but we're nowhere near that you know and I think it's very I don't know, maybe comforting to hear that it's not just you, Dunyan, and it's not just your friend that's going through this. Every single person is going through something in their life. And I think nobody is in a place where they thought they would be when they were kids. You know what I mean? Like everybody is struggling with something. Everyone, you know, wants that perfect job, but doesn't have it. Everyone wants, you know, that perfect relationship. They want, there's, everyone always wants something that they don't have. And I think we tend to look at other people's lives just through like a looking glass. We don't realize that like nobody's life is perfect and I just want to put that out there I know social media makes it feel like you know everyone has it all together and everyone is happy all the time and they're in great relationships and they're you know they're working at their their dream job but like behind closed doors and once you take that filter off it's really not that case at all especially when you take that filter off and you know what I was thinking something a little deep I was like I assume certain things should happen for me because you assume like with societal pressure that certain things should happen for you. You should get married. You should have kids. You should have the perfect job. You should have a home. But what if none of those things are really meant for me? What if like Allah's plan for you doesn't include those things? And I know that's such a scary thought, but the other day I had to post this to my personal snap story and I'm going to read it out to you guys. I, I just feel like somebody out there honestly also needs to hear this as well because this is something that really kind of brought peace to my heart and it's the concept of risk and it's so truly beautiful. So I'm going to read it word for word from this post. I wish I can give credit to where credit is due, but I don't know who posted it. But it said, 
like even when you eat a piece of fruit, it was always written for you. From the moment it grew from the tree, it went through all these people and traveled all this way until it was in your hands. It was always meant to be yours. Everything in this world that is meant to be yours has your name on it and Allah has willed it to eventually reach you, subhanAllah. One way or another, from every rice grain you'll ever eat to every person you'll ever love, it's so comforting to think about. Isn't that so deep? It is, and I'm thinking about what you were saying earlier, like we expect things to happen for us, but if it isn't an Allah's plan for us, there's no, absolutely no way that it's going to happen. You know what I mean? And I think obviously it's very hard to kind of let go of those expectations of what we think is supposed to happen and put our trust in Allah. But I think that's the only way that we can rid ourselves of those feelings of like, I'm not, you know, I'm not adding up. Why is it happening for everyone? It's not happening for me. We really do need to let go and trust Allah in these situations. And in these situations is when I try to strengthen my relationship with Allah. Because honestly, Zayn, if we don't, that's when you really fall in despair. And yeah. this is something that the village auntie said. I don't know if you guys know her on Instagram, but she's incredible. But she's like, despair is one of the character traits of Iblis. And she's mm -hmm. like, imagine that you have, do you want to share the same character trait as Iblis? And I'm like, oh my God, no, I don't want that. And she's like, that one of them is despair. And, and how can you you know, avoid despair is strengthening relationship with Allah, is talking to Allah, is putting your trust in Allah. And I know some of these things are so much easier said than done. I'm telling you, when you're in sujood and you're crying your eyes out, nobody's saying that it's easy or you're just relieving yourself of the pain. It's it's It takes a toll on you. It really does. Basically, this introduction is for people who really feel like, yeah, they're a lot is going on in their life right now and we hear you and we see you and we understand you and at the same time let's also inshallah take care of our mental health and so we can always stand alongside everybody else that's going through other things around the world again with the black community this episode is no different we're going to talk about racism it's still prevalent in our community and i know sometimes yeah this takes a toll on our mental health even if you are not black but what about the black community having to deal with this what about their mental health so inshallah, inshallah, Allah gives us the strength to continue to fight every injustice in this world and to be able to strengthen us in our own personal jihads. And for this episode, we have a very special guest and her name is Iman Idil Barra. And she's a law student. She's a fashion and political journalist. She's also a designer. And, you know, you, you probably have seen her work in Teen Vogue, CBC News and Allure and so much more. She's incredible. And this conversation is so relevant. We recorded it a month ago, mind you. So that's the only reason why we only talk about George Floyd. Obviously, ever since George Floyd, there has been numerous other situations that have occurred other senseless murders at the hands of police brutality and you know amy cooper's too but this episode is super important very relevant and inshallah you guys enjoy it ready to dive in let's do it I want to thank you so much, Iman, for joining us. I feel like there's just so much to unpack within this episode. I want to talk everything from mental health in the black community to media and racism and everything in between. But I first would love for you to introduce yourself and then we can get right into it. Yeah, for sure. So my name is Iman, Iman Idul Badr. I am 27, Canadian. I am a journalist. I mean, I'm a couple of things. I'm so a journalist, well. a yoga teacher, a designer, and our third year law students. And I'm primarily interested in intellectual property law and essentially making sure black artists get paid for their work. I've said this before to Aisha, because I know you know Aisha, and I'm like literally living vicariously through you and her because of 
you guys going through law school and becoming lawyers, mashallah, I think that's so incredible. And I think that is something that's really needed as much as we're trying to kind of untangle the systematic injustices that are happening against the black community and whatnot. I feel like it also, we need to think about the courtroom as well, even if you're not specifically going into that. I think any area, any field that you're disappointed with right now, it's a, it's kind of like motivation for you to get your foot in the door, get into that career, whether it's in the media, whether it's through law, whether it's even our police. I mean, if you don't like how police are acting right now, become a police yourself and change the system. I think that's what we need more of. I might disagree with you on that, Zena. We're going to get <laughs> into it. too, but we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, good. We're going to talk about I, police. I like, I like hearing. police, but. I like hearing that. Okay, good. Okay, let's let's get into this because I'm excited to look, learn. I wasn't even looking at him, man. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to stop right I'm there. I'm glad you said it. I'm glad you said okay. it. I was like, I'll just, I'll just slow down. Listen, <laughs> I don't mind being corrected, so if I say anything, anything that's out of line or that you don't agree with, call me out on it because I need to learn. And I think the only way that we're going to learn is hearing from people who are actually experiencing it because as much as we study, as much as we learn, as much as we listen to these speeches, Duny and I and everyone listening who isn't part of the Black community will never understand your side and what you guys are going through. So we need you guys to teach us because otherwise we'll completely just be out of the loop. But even to the point of, you know what, we need to teach ourselves as well because the resources are out there. Even just me watching one documentary, man, like I was like, wow, I never knew all of this was happening. Yeah. And I think that's super important that we cannot continue to exhaust the black community. We have to take accountability. And I think we teach ourselves so many things in this world, but yet we don't want to teach ourselves about our black counterparts. You know, we said this before we even went on air. I'd rather be corrected you know, I would rather speak up and be corrected than be silent and be complicit. And I think that's super important nowadays. Yeah. And I know a lot of people, I feel like we fear more so getting called out than actually the fear of hurting the black community by what we say. But I want to start out with, Iman, just the microaggressions that you have faced when you were younger. Like, I want to talk about everything that you, you know, have dealt with since you were younger up until now, if you're okay with that. Yeah, I just, where do I start? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I guess. For me, like, I grew up small town in the middle of Canada where, like, I always say people are, like, politely racist here. Like, they don't really realize they're being racist, but it's, they'll always comment on how beautiful your skin is or just, like, which is, like, not a bad thing necessarily, but when it's, like, people are always bringing up your skin and no one else's skin, it's just weird. Growing up, like, I never, there was no one who could ever cut my hair. And, like, I have, like, three C curls, like, they're little ringlets. It's not that hard to cut my hair. But it would always be like, oh, like, we're not really trained in, like, cutting your kind of hair. And it's, like, it's just weird to think that, like, beauty schools don't even factor my hair texture in. So it's not like systemic discrimination is not just, like, you know, being called the N-word or police brutality. It's, like, embedded in our society and the way we think about what is or is not normal. Even like as a teenager, I only ever wore MAC foundation and my friends always like made fun of me as like, you know, having like the bougiest taste for like a 13 year old, but literally MAC was the only brand that was accessible to me that had diverse skin tones. So it's like, wow. I had to spend $50 on foundation. I didn't have exactly. a choice. All of those little things. But I think for me, like I always experienced most of my racism growing up from like other, like other Arabs. It's so strange to me how now I'm seeing those exact same people talk about Islamophobia and like, you know, xenophobia and like all the injustices against the Muslim and Arab community while they're continuing to perpetuate the exact same violence against the black community. I'm like, okay, you can see racial injustice, but you're intentionally choosing to not see it when it doesn't benefit you. And like, that's like, it's, it's, it's interesting because even now they'll be talking about BLM and like, I see some of these girls posting that I grew up with. And it's so interesting because 
they're still only capable of understanding racism through how it affects them. So they'll post things like, don't say you're pro-BLM if you wouldn't let your daughter marry a Black man. And I'm like, why is it the only time you're capable of understanding anti-Blackness is when it relates to you? No one's trying to marry you. No one wants to come into your racist-ass family. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're not doing Mm -hmm. me a favor by marrying me. And it's just, I don't think they realize how selfish their understanding of racism is because it's still only as it relates to you, right? Like, it's an ugliness that I really, like, I want to believe they'll get past, but it's the selfishness that I just think is so embedded in how they see themselves that it's going to take a lot more work than, like, I'm capable of, like, walking them through. And it's a choice. I think at this point with a lot of people, it's actually a choice to not educate yourself, right? Like, there is literally not a single reason people should still be saying Abby's. Not one. I don't care. We're all we're all the slaves of God, sure, but I've never heard anyone call a Syrian Abid. You know, it's just even like thinking about some of the desserts. I know Syrians have one. What's it called? Like Ras al Abid. It's like the it's like yes. a chocolate. Yeah, and I'm like, when people say things like that, I'm like, you can't tell me this isn't relating specifically to black people. This is not we're all slaves of God. This is you hate black people. And it's like, it's interesting because you still have to fight with Arab men and Arab boys who constantly still want to say the N-word, even though all this anti-blackness is very like prevalent in their society. And like, I'm East African. We have our own issues with anti-blackness and colorism. This is not just a critique like, you know, like the Shami community or the Arab community. I have had many conversations with my parents my mom in particular, who grew up like in Egypt and Syria, who would say things like, they're just not from our culture. Like talking about if I want to marry someone who's like West African. And again, this goes back to marriage because I think I think parents have to confront their own racism when it comes to marriage. But I think that's I think it's important that we have those conversations before it comes to to marriage, if you know what I mean. But yes. for me, it's like in my life, I've made a very conscious decision to only like my my brother is married to a black woman my obviously my dad's married to a black woman my mom's black and like people in my family actively marry other black people for our own like our own mental health because I can't imagine being married to someone who does understand anti-blackness right now especially so talking to there was a a guy that I was seeing a while ago who's african-american and I brought it up to my mom and her reasoning was they're just not from our they're not our people and I'm like what do you what do you mean (laughs) like if you would be okay with me marrying a Palestinian but not a Nigerian guy or an african-american guy when my skin tone is much more similar to theirs, then, you know, it's like, we can't act like this is only something other people perpetuate on us and that we're not reciprocating. So there's a lot. I could talk about this forever. (laughs) No, thank you for unpacking all of that. Because even to the point of, I I see that all the time on um, social media is just like, you can't say you're anti-black, or you can't say that you're anti-racist if you don't allow your daughter or your son to marry somebody that's black. And I think when we mention that, and to me, I've always looked at it, it's like, that's just scratching the surface. Like, why is it that when it comes to marriage, do we all of a sudden look at race and talk about race and talk about the differences and the comparisons? Like, why aren't these conversations, like you said, Iman, happening way before so that when it comes to marriage, that's the last thing that should be on our mind rather than it being the first thing on our mind we have to i think our community has to do a better job at realizing that racism exists even when it doesn't affect us personally and you know marriage does affect us personally but let's say like you said let's say without marriage we're not talking about marriage we're talking about seeing a black guy on the street get harassed by police yeah that doesn't impact us personally but we're witnessing something happening right now we should feel outraged by that the same way we would be outraged if it was personally happening to us I feel like even just being Muslim, you have no choice to say that you are going to step in and say something or not. You have no choice. You're going 
to have to step in and say something because as a Muslim, when you see an injustice happening against somebody and you want to fully call yourself a Muslim and you want to say, I practice the faith of Islam, then you have to stand up and speak up when you see an injustice happening. And I think oftentimes we don't do that. We we kind of almost give even our religion a color. And we think that black people, we have to, we have to just unpack a, a black person so much so we have to ask them like how are you muslim like explain to me it's like what do you mean Race with the fat is a faith <laughs> it's a faith you know what i mean it's a faith you can't ask somebody well you look like this how can you be muslim or how can you be christian and whatnot but you even mentioned something also like going back to just like the microaggressions and i think microaggressions like exist just like you said zaina is because that people don't want to take accountability they don't want to believe that these things exist especially when you're white you don't want to believe that all this racism is embedded within every Every single aspect of our daily lives but for you even when you're in law school when a teacher once called you articulate and you how did that make you feel and why because some people don't understand that like they'll look at that as like that's a compliment why are you having why are you taking offense with this I think it's the here's the thing that's hard to explain sometimes it's that it's not that one instance that you draw offense from it's the consistency of that happening so even though that one particular time the teacher may not have meant wow I'm surprised that you sounded this intelligent it's I guess the way being a racialized person particularly being black the way it affects you is that you scrutinize all of your experiences through the race of lens because of all the times that it has been racial so I don't I don't actually know my teacher could have just been complimenting me but it's the fact that she's never said that to anyone before. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, why? There's three Black people here. And I was speaking about race in that comment. She brought up whether or not... This was a, an ethics class. And we were talking about how Black attorneys are more likely to be disciplined than like non-Black attorneys with through the American Bar Association. That is a whole other conversation that I think we can dive into because it, it really looks at how we're willing to forgive non-black people for things we don't forgive black people for but we'll leave that conversation aside for now with my professor we immediately dived into white supremacy for whatever reason she was like asking us whether or not we think a white supremacist should be admitted to the bar and all of these things and my pushback from there was a a student made a comment about like black supremacists or whatever and uh people who think you know black people are superior to white people because apparently there's like a sect of like black Israelites in DC who say a lot of things that are like based on black supremacy and like I basically pushed back on that and was like please name a single time a black person has lynched a white person because where you use terminology like black supremacy to kind of infantilize and diminish the 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 evilness of white supremacy kind of to make yourself feel better to kind of say like well black people are doing it too it's not just a white person thing but it 100 percent is only a white person thing. Like, mm-hmm. there's no there's no other way talking about it. And I basically said, like, even if, you know, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and just pretend black supremacy is really a thing, even if they go before a bar association, they're sc- still going to be disciplined more aggressively than a white supremacist because the people on the ABA are predominantly white, right? And, like, statistics are showing us that black people are being disproportionately punished. So whatever your ideology, white supremacy is the only one that's actually embedded into American legal framework and American society. And so that my professor said I was articulate. And twofold to that, I know more about the subject because I'm forced to learn about it. So of course, I'm going to sound more intelligent than my classmates. I literally just know more. But also, why are you bringing it like for her to have brought up white supremacy in such a casual way and not actually facilitate a conversation is like, yeah, that's something else. You know, Muslim, it, like 
aid organizations and charity organizations or even like bring being pro-Palestine is going to be more likely to paint you as a terrorist in American society than being a member of the KKK. It's because we are the other and the like they don't see themselves even if they it's kind of like the the marriage thing. It's like it doesn't affect them personally. So they're not going to have as much, you know, they're not going to be as bothered by it. They're not going to want to criminalize it. Whereas like realistically they have white supremacists in their family, right? Like whether or not they're whether they're actively or like passively, you know, perpetuating white supremacist ideologies. It's the personal harm and like where you're willing to actually invest your time and your capital. I think we talk a lot about how racism isn't, we're not born racist, it's kind of taught, but unfortunately racism is, you know, picked up by really young kids at a super young age and that gets carried on and it comes like sort of embedded in their, in who they are in their system. And that's why someone's saying, you know, you're articulate and she left out for a black person. I think she held herself back, back for saying that. Who knows what her real intentions were, but it could have been on the tip of her tongue the same way someone can come up to you and be like, oh my God, you have really nice hair. Can I touch it? Those things they don't see as racist, but because it's it's embedded in who they are, they can go around saying that things and not, you know, not mean it in a racist way, but they are in fact being racist. I don't know if that makes sense. They normalize it. They don't see they don't see that they are causing harm or inflicting harm or hurt on somebody other than themselves. Cause it's just, yeah, they they don't think what they're saying is wrong. And I think that's why microaggressions exist. But when it comes to your law school, I know right now you sent them an email discussing the fact of how they should approach and address the the murder of George Floyd. And this is something that I even dealt with at my job because I knew that something was gonna happen. I work with predominantly white men in my workforce. I'm in an accounting office. Like, what else do you expect? And the thing is, as soon as, like, you know, we started our little chat room because that's just how, because we're all working from home, it's just, like, they were expressing more hurt and disdain at the fact that nobody cared that there was a a launch or a NASA launch or whatever. (laughs) And and then one of my coworkers said, like, he's like, I'm just mad that nobody even cared about the NASA launch because of everything else going on. And I was like, how can you just, how can you just so nonchalantly just put a, a murder of George Floyd and everything that's going on and the unrest that's going on in the world as just under the umbrella of everything else going on? So it's like, this is the first time that I'm experiencing this. So I messaged my manager personally, because obviously this was one of my coworkers. And I told him like, this is something that needs to be addressed. And it's not okay that he just said that just, just nonchalantly. I'm like, he needs to understand that other people can find that offensive. Thank God we didn't have anybody that was black within our group that where it could have really inflicted pain before. For me, that's somebody that's not black. That that just pissed me off. It really pissed me off. And I know that they had a conversation with him. But how do we continue to challenge our places of work and challenge our college campuses and wherever we are? Like, how can we continue to challenge them and tell them, like, this is not right? How did he die? Why aren't we talking about that? What are your thoughts on that? I think for most, I was just talking to my mentor about this. And my mentor is a white woman. And she's, I've had black mentors and white mentors. And she's easily, like the most with it like she is the most like I know I don't understand racism but these are all the resources resources that I have and this is all that I can offer you you know so she's always willing to do as much as she can and and take feedback which is really important her and I were talking about like having a podcast and like having these conversations as well but as it relates specifically she wanted to just talk about systemic racism overall the reason why even just talking about police brutality overall is overwhelming for places of work is it doesn't fit if you're a fashion brand talking about police brutality, unless you're you're investing in like police pensions or police unions or something like that, you're not really, it's not really for you. But specifically talking about how like the racial wage gap 
or things that specifically relate to your industry are actually how because police brutality is like the end of white supremacy like that's how it's after years of being socialized to dehumanize black people etc etc that's when you can have someone kill george floyd a police officer kill kill george floyd in front of i need to stress this in front of a group of people right this wasn't a single bullet this was him choosing to kill him in front of people where he could he could have just moved his knee he could have just let him up he could have just arrested him and put him in the back of a police patrol but he was socialized to believe that he, he had the power to do that so i think dismantling it at the beginning stages so actively choosing to pay people pay black people the amount of money they deserve as opposed so to exploiting true. them promoting black people investing in black people uh, there's this, uh, I can't remember what the page is called. I can send it to you later on Instagram, but it's basically telling everyone in the beauty in- industry, like pull up or shut up. Like tell us how much black talent you have. Tell us how many black people are in your C-suites. Um, and then if there aren't enough, tell us what you're going to do to like change it. Right. And like, you can't talk about police brutality without talking about all the little ways that police brutality is justified. Right. Like it's not just the police that are failing black people. It's also the justice system that's failing black people because the first person in Minneapolis to be convicted, the uh, first police officer to be convicted and sent and uh, sent to jail was Mohammed um, Noor, and he's facing 12 years for shooting an Australian woman and killing her. This Australian woman ran towards him. He, you know, claimed self-defense. We can talk about police being a little too trigger happy in another conversation, but Philando Castile was sitting. He wasn't running, and the cop was still, you know, faced no jail time. I'm pretty sure he still works with the police, actually. So it's what can we do in our place of work to be less anti-Black? That's where the conversation needs to start. And it starts by looking at why do we not have a single Black person on this team in a city that has, you know, this many Black people? Are we actively trying to, are we actively trying to make our place of work reflective of the community that we serve? Like, that's the most important question. Yeah, and I think that we're seeing a lot of companies' true colors throughout this entire process. I mean, you talked about how like fashion brands may not step up because it doesn't fit their brand. But I just want to point out Nickelodeon, which is targeted toward kids, you know, they turn off their programming for eight minutes just to teach little kids about racism. And they it, they explain what happened to George Floyd and why they're, you know, why they're taking these eight minutes off air. And then the, I think it was like the, creative director of Nickelodeon was like, hey, I might not have too many black people in my boardroom, but I'm trying to change that. Send me your resume, send me your work, let's bring you guys in. So if Nickelodeon can make that change, I think all these big companies who say, you know, we're doing all that we can really can, they can step up and do a lot more. It's just interesting because now it's like the whole world is now finally focusing on this movement that has been you know, put in place since the birth of Black Lives Matter. But obviously, Black Lives Matter mattered way before it all became an organization. But it's just like, it's sad that we have to, we have to teach ourselves these things and educate ourselves at the expense of another black life lost. And I think it's like, how can we continue to educate ourselves without having to see another, another person die at the hands of police brutality? And again, yeah, that's like the end right there. I mean, literally, it's so sad to say, but that is the end because that's where they lose their life. And it's like, it brings me to the, the, the fact of like Amy Cooper and what she did. And to me, when she knew, when she picked up the phone to call the cops, 
as a white woman, she knew what the outcome would be. So you can't sit here and say, I'm not racist. You can't sit here and say, I was defending myself. You know, when you're picking up a, your the, your phone and you're trying to call the cops on a black man that was literally just telling you to put your dog on a leash or whatever it was, you knew exactly that you are part of the system that has always been against black people. What were your thoughts on like even just seeing the whole Amy Cooper thing just unravel? <laughs> Amy Cooper is the woman at work who calls black black women aggressive yeah. you know like there are yeah. so many times where i've dealt with amy cooper's amy cooper's canadian racism you know and she also is canadian it's like that ugly sinister um you can't you can't openly call it racism because you don't actually know but there's enough evidence if you're paying attention to history and current affairs where you know like this is like there's a reason she kept saying african-american right she did not say there's a man in the park i'm scared she said there's an african-american man which is like not that's that's the subtle way of being racist in Canada, you know, like just saying, oh, there's these types of people, hint, hint, wink, wink, please understand why I'm afraid. Uh, Amy Cooper is why there's a lot of, why black people who are deserving of promotions aren't getting promotions, right? So it's like, that is, of course, the man who, the police officer who killed George Floyd is, you know, that's another level of racism. He had access to, his job is committing violence. So like, that's, that's where he's able to, you know, further that's where he's able to be racist by with through violence but with someone like amy cooper who is like a gatekeeper of opportunity like this is also like the the racial wealth gap in the u.s is astronomical the last report came out i think it was in 2017 or 2018 the last pew report i think that's what it's called pew pw white families the median uh, income is one hundred and seventy thousand dollars in black communities, it's $17,000. Like, that's like an astronomical amount. It's not the police officer necessarily, although he does contribute to that. It's the Amy Coopers, right? There's a lot more Amy Coopers in the world, and there's a lot less consequences for Amy Coopers. Even though the cop, I, it took the world, the world protesting to get charges brought against that cop. There is not going to be a similar backlash for an Amy Cooper that's not caught on camera, or the Amy Cooper where you don't exactly know if it's racism. And I actually just want to bring up uh, Sony released a statement. Sony Music Group, inclusive of all of its recorded music and publishing companies, announced today a $100 million fund to support social justice and anti-racist initiatives around the world. Uh, Sony Music Group needs to pay Black people the royalties it owes. Dating back to, I want to even say the 1920s with like race records, 1920s, 1930s, and this is what I focus on specifically, like my legal education. They were, I believe, they were called Columbia Records at the time, I believe, or C... Columbia Records or CMS, I can't remember, but they, there were African-Americans who were illiterate and couldn't, uh, illiterate, so they couldn't sign their contracts. Columbia Records, Sony Music, would forge their signatures and forcefully hand over all of their royalties to uh, Sony Music, right? There's a woman, Bessie Smith, Emperor of Blues. I talk about her on Facebook obsessively. I'm obsessed with her story. <laughs> she pulled Columbia Records, so Sony Music, let's just call them Sony Music, out of bankruptcy in the 20s. That's how much money she made for them. When she died in 1937, her family did not have enough money to build to buy a tombstone for her. That's how oh, poor man. she was. And when her family tried to sue Sony Music in 1979, the judge said she made $2,000 a week. That's a lot of money for any Black woman at that time. So even in terms of how much she deserved to make, they only gave her how much money they believe a Black person should make. But white people who were significantly less talented were making a lot more in addition to royalties. This, seeing things like this 
we don't need a hundred million dollars from Sony because the money they owe black people and the money they made off of black people, it's significantly more than that. So I would rather them say, Hey, we're actually going to do the right thing and pay up. You know, we're going to do Bessie Smith's, her great granddaughter still alive. We're going to give her all of this money that we owe her that she made us because we stole from her. Right. It's like, we don't need you to do things from for us. We need you to give us back our property. So it's not, People don't know that history about Sony unless you studied it. You're like, wow, Sony Music is doing this. It's like Black people built Sony Music. So what's this about, you know? I'm probably going to tweet them after this, actually. I'm really mad now that I think about it. Yes. Yeah, that infuriates <laughs> me. Like, No, she posted about it, Iman. I've seen it before, and I read curious. your snaps when you posted about it. And it- My thesis is on this. Like, I've written 190 pages on, you know, the legacy of Bessie Smith and how companies like Sony Music have actively contributed to the racial wealth gap in America, right? So it's not, this is what I mean. Like, they're still saving money by only giving a hundred million, right? So this still benefits them, right? You people really need to understand how much black people literally built every aspect of American society, right? We are entirely responsible. I say we, even though I'm not African-American. So I'm going to say, I, I always feel a little hesitant saying we, because like, it wasn't my ancestors necessarily, but by proxy of being black, it kind of, I feel like I've adopted the struggle at this point. Uh, even just going back to like, you know, when there's this other other case that I read, it's called uh, Invention of a Slave. And it was, it basically talked about how this, this, this person who owned an enslaved African, it was basically the system that he put into place in order to claim all of the patents and inventions created by the person that he enslaved. So it's like, even all of this, this old money in America that we see, so much of it not only dates back to physical, like black people, like being owned as property, but also goes back to things that are intellectual property created. When we we're talking about American history, we need to talk about what white people intentionally stole from black people and made their wealth off of. When we talk about the racial wealth gap, we need to analyze how tax law systemically disadvantaged African-Americans, how it was legalized by the state, how mortgages were intentionally set up to make it so that black people never actually owned property. They were just paying interest, right? I always talk about how Islamically interest is hot on for a reason, right? We're supposed to, I know there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uncomfortable, it's, it's difficult because for a lot of us who don't come from, you know, wealthy families and choose to pursue post-secondary education, the only option is to take out loans. So that's one where I'm like, it's still hot on, but I get why we have to do it. But when it comes to things like, uh, you know, even when we look at like uh, payday loans, right? That's why it's hot on. It's because you're going to be paying off the interest for the rest of your life. So as Muslims, when we operate, we need to look at, I want to, this is kind of branching off into another conversation, but we really need to look at how the harm that we're causing to people through our actions as well, right? Like we need to look at whether or not we're buying foreclosed property. I struggle with saying this because I maybe don't know as much Islamically as I should, but like, you're not supposed to do things that cause other people pain. When you're buying another person's property because they couldn't afford to, you, I, I don't, I don't know how we can call that a halal purchase, you know, if a bank foreclosed a home and it's incredibly cheap. Is it our place to come in and benefit off of another person's misfortune? Looking at things like liquor stores in the, in the black community, right? Like why are Muslims opening up liquor stores when we know the, that addiction is prevalent here? Yeah, we're going to make money. Aside from the money being haram for selling something that's haram, whatever your own internal struggle is, there's no reason that you need to be selling this to, you know, a community that's plagued by addiction. And then on top of that, 
so the, pro the thing is haram, but then you're contributing to harm in a society. So it's like, when we talk about anti-blackness in our community, we need to be having all of these conversations. We also need to be talking about why we choose to send our kids to schools, why we choose to live in white neighborhoods, as opposed to building and investing in communities of color. And I say communities of color because when, you know, Muslims start moving into black communities, that's what it becomes. And I'm not saying gentrify the neighborhood. I'm not saying, you know, make it impossible for the people of that community to, to live there. I'm saying actually invest and build with them because it is literally through the backs of African-Americans that any of our families were allowed into this country, right? Like 100%. all of the rights that we have were given to us through like literally them laying down their lives for us. So it's, this is the debt that we owe. And like, this is the tax that we have to pay to them for allowing us to come into their country and still be treated better than them. I wish I could snap my fingers, but I don't want to be in everyone's <laughs> ears right now because everything, every point you touched on was incredibly accurate. And I agree with everything you say. We owe the black community so much more and we, we just, they deserve more credit than we can ever give them, I think. But just even just the way you put things into perspective, why do we open liquor stores in communities that don't need liquor stores? They need more of a community presence. How can we how can we come together and be there for one another? And yes, we're not black, but we are of color. We understand how there are some injustices that we feel ourselves, but it will never compare to the black struggle, 100% not. But even just me being a Palestinian, me more than ever, I should understand the black community. As a Palestinian, I can be white passing and I can go anywhere in the world and I wouldn't be judged or anything like that. But I see how I should understand. I should understand that there are all these racial injustices against the black people and I should be infuriated as much as the black people for them. And that's the thing. I think oftentimes we only want to talk about something that affects us. We don't talk about things that just because we're not from a certain community doesn't mean that we can't stand with that community. And I think that's a problem that we only are just, it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's ego. I don't know if it's just like this superiority complex that like at least we feel we're superior to another group of people and whatnot. And I think that's, that's just white supremacy at its finest when we as people of color think that we're even better than black people. I'm not saying everybody's like this, but there it's almost like we have our own ladder within our own communities of like who's better than the next person. It's survival. It's really like we do it because we're like, we'd rather it be them than us. We don't want to cause a fuss. We don't want to bring bad attention to us. Let's just, you know, try to stick by the rules, whatever, whatever. It's like that model minority complex. But also we need to know our own history because this is literally like divide and conquer that's been implemented since I don't even know when but if you look at like colonial history in Africa it's like this is where so much of the sectarian violence comes from this is like the like the colorism the okay people with lighter skin are better than people with darker skin even if they're the same part of the exact same family right when you give people tools to let them think that they're better than the group that you are oppressing there is going to be less likely of a chance of them revolting and like you know combining powers you kind of have put them on your side by bringing this into an american context during uh like during uh when slavery was legal in america and i say that loosely because i dubois talks about this a lot in black reconstruction if you haven't read black reconstruction i highly recommend it if white poor white people in like you know when uh antebellum if they if they chose to advocate for the abolishment of slavery it would have benefited them because white wages were kept artificially low because there was still free labor to get have a better quality of life and be paid better you need to get rid of the free labor the reason that they didn't is because of what Dubois calls a psychological wage 
they just felt like they were better than black people. So even if they were being, you know, taken advantage of and not making enough money and all these awful things were also happening to them, they walked around the streets with this, you know, superiority complex. We're not the lowest on the ladder. There is somebody out there who is lower than us. Therefore, even if I can't afford to eat, I'm white. Therefore, I'm not the lowest of the low on this planet, you know? Yeah, so there needs to be more coalitions between minority groups because we we are only the minority when it comes to power. We There's a lot more of us than there is of them, but because we're so focused on our own separate issues. But look at it this way. If all social justice movements came from the Black community, right, the roots of all of them came from the Black community, by siding with or by advocating for the Black struggle for Black liberation, everyone else's struggle is in there. Like, labor unions um, or labor movement, uh, LGBTQ issues, uh, feminist issues, literally all of that is encompassed in the black community because we're not removed from any of that. And black people have always been on the front lines when it comes to like liberation of Palestine, you know, like it's always been, you will not 100%. find someone who's pro BLM, but still anti-Palestinian, you know, it's just not, it's not how we do things. So I don't know. It's people just need to read, literally just go back to our history, read, understand things. I think that what's going to give these protests longevity is when, you know, quiet's done a little bit more on the streets. If we actually take a step back and talk to the people who were out there in the, out there in the 70s and 80s and 90s and learn how police and the government manipulate protests, if we learn how the state continues to perpetuate this violence, we can't move forward until we actually understand our past or we will continue to make the same mistakes, right? We can't just have these emotional responses. There needs to be longevity. And we have to have we have to have intergenerational conversations for that longevity to like, you know, take place. One hundred percent. Because yeah. I feel like this has been going on for generations and generations and there's a reason for that because we are not having these conversations. And the thing is, we'll show up to these protests and we'll chant solidarity, but what does that truly mean? What does that mean beyond the beyond the protests when you're inside your home? Like what are we actively doing? And I stressed actively doing because I feel like, yeah, right now there is this feeling that everybody's on this movement because it's trending right now because this is what instagram is talking about but how do we continue to keep this up even past it being trending even past the officers being charged and actually found guilty you know what i mean like what can we continue to do because clearly we're not doing enough if this continues to happen if we're continuing to reduce black men and women to hashtags and and that's the last thing that anybody wants is to see another black man and woman dying even with you know with police brutality or not again it, it could even happen at the hands of like an Amy Cooper, like we said. What can we do on our end to stop that? What is your idea of solidarity? What does that mean to you coming from somebody, uh, you know, from the black community? What does that mean to you when somebody says they're chanting solidarity? How do you think that we should continue to keep going, like, you know, to actually do our part when we do say solidarity and we stand in solidarity with the black community? I think it goes, it honestly goes back to money. And I hate saying that, but like, that's the basis of everything, right? Like, if these protests die out, it's not because people lack the passion for it. It's because we didn't give them enough resources, which is why I've been so hard on my school. Like we need lawyers. Like we don't need blanket statements. We're not, I don't go to art school. I go to law school. I don't need a generic reading list or whatever. I need to look at how the justice system can help these people right now. Right. And I can understand, I don't know, like a journalism school, not wanting to send people out, even though I don't really understand that either. But the law is, you're not meant to look at the politics of it, right? The same way medical schools, they sent out doctors or med students to hospitals to help with the pandemic. 
it, the pandemic was absolutely political, right? Like you had the state and federal government back and forth constantly, but they're the oath they swear is to like upholding like the health of people, you know, maintaining. Um, I don't actually know what the oath is. I'll ask my brother who is a doctor. <laughs> but <laughs> something about something about keeping people healthy, right? Regardless of who they are. Same with lawyers. Like we have a duty to uphold justice, and if we're not. If we're saying, well, we can't actually do this because it's too political, ask yourself why Black people being killed by police is political. Like, it literally should not be political. And for my school, I sent them statistics. I'm like, you're white students. Their sixth leading cause of death is Alzheimer's. For Black people, it's literally police brutality. How are you... Like, we need to normalize the Black experience everywhere. It needs to not be, like, this, like, awkward thing that we kind of think about. Because right now we have, like, the norm is the white experience, right? Like, white law students don't really have to actively think about not being killed by police. So by sending me a reading list, my school is 100% only catering to white people. I don't need to read about police brutality. I've, you know, I've seen it. My friends are being arrested right now. If I'm going to be treated like a second class citizen at my law school, I'm going to be paying like not, I'm not paying 60K a year. Alhamdulillah, I'm on a full ride. I'm not paying anyways, but (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing. (laughs) They need to be, you know, take some, like pay for my living or something because I'm, I'm still required to educate my deans or I'm required to educate other students. And like, if I'm going to be acting as some sort of like, you know, educational tool, every single professor in my school is being paid, pay me. Like, this is the thing, like pay black people for the work that they're doing because it's taking away time that I could literally be spent doing anything else aside from like this emotionally exhausting and taxing conversations that you're, you know, constantly being asked to have. I spoke with my dean yesterday and I said, the conversations that were, I was like, we can't have a town hall when something like this happens because we are a law school. A town hall is not helpful for someone like me. And I read him a text that I was getting from my friends who were being shot at by police and like all of these awful things that are happening to them. I'm like, this town hall does not help me when people I love are in danger. And <laughs> his response was, well, you know, that's great that you have an amazing support system to get you through this, but not everybody has a support system. I'm like, literally every black person, every black person (laughs) has a support system right now. Like we have people to talk to because this is the norm. This is not the first time this has happened. We've, you know, adjusted to it. So even in his response to me, he doesn't realize that he's only catering to the white experience. And like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not even going to say I'm an entitled person. I'm just not willing to settle for more than I deserve in any capacity. And I don't care who I upset in getting like, you know, in that pursuit. It's not, yeah, a conversation, you know, I feel like I'm going to war with my school right now and trying to force them to act. But the other option is watching people that I love go to jail and or die. So it's not really, it's an uncomfortable place to be in, but the other option is significantly more depressing. And I don't think people realize like that's the magnitude of this. This is you know, take your place of work to task, take your school to task and or watch people you love die. I'm not, I'm not even at my breaking point. I'm at my getting started point. Like this is like, I refuse to let my niece have this conversation. I refuse to let other black law students have this conversation. When we look at why there are more, there's not enough black people in executive offices, you know, in positions of power. Yeah. Amy Cooper's of the world absolutely play a role, but it's also the toxic environment that that is in general being created. If I'm constantly having to spend, you know, my thinking hours, my highest like brain functioning hours explaining these things to people, it's taking away from the amount of work that I can do. When I worked as a, as a journalist, there, <laughs> oh my God, there's so <laughs> many stories I can tell. When, when I worked as a reporter, my, I once did a story 
So we had two teams. We were supposed to do a story on artificial intelligence and police and like how police were using facial recognition software and predictive technology to kind of uh, arrest people and how it was also being used in the justice system. So there were two teams. One team was a, a national reporter, a national producer, uh, an associate producer, a camera guy, and a writer. The second team was me. Literally me. Wow. <laughs> um, they were supposed to go to Chicago and interview the police in Chicago about like technology that they were using, whatever, whatever. And then I was supposed to be doing this other story on how predictive technology was being used in sentencing reports. The team with five people had a massive budget. My team, I had my pockets. Like I literally funded my own trips and my work was like, oh yeah, we'll pay you back. Uh, they did pay me back after like four months of fighting with them. And like, I was an associate producer, not, I think I was making like 75K a year. That's not a lot of money. I live in a very expensive city. I landed my story and it was a four piece story. The other team with five people who had years of experience. Like mm -hmm. I was older than the youngest, I was youngest, I was younger than the youngest person on that team. They didn't get anything. Like they literally, I don't understand how they spent that much money and that much time and didn't nail a single story. And I came out of it with like four or five stories. And even when it came to the editing process and transcribing, I stayed up all night transcribing. I was so tired the next day. My dad had to drive me to my next interview, which is 40 minutes out of the city that I live in. They didn't even get me a camera guy. I had to be my own camera person. Wow. And uh, the next day I called my executive producer. He's like, oh, he's like, you were transcribing all night. I guess we forgot to tell you that we actually have a transcription service. You could have just sent it to us. And it's like, you told me I had to have this done. Do you understand that I don't know these things? Like, I can't read your mind. If you don't tell me the tools that I have, I'm going to assume I have to do it myself. And it's like, nothing happened to those white people who didn't get their story. If that had been me, I would never be put on a story like this again. There was no acknowledgement of how much work they made me do, right? So it's like, and if I had failed, it would have been like, I'm not qualified to be a journalist. I'm not good at this. I'm not this, as opposed to saying something like, okay, I'm, they're just expecting too much. Yeah, it's just, it's, ongoing it just translates to everything basically being stacked up against you and you having to continuously fight and fight and fight and it's like you never get this rest stop you never get to approach a rest stop whatsoever you have to continuously to keep going to compete with your white counterparts who are given everything and more and yet they still don't deliver and and when they don't deliver there are no consequences yeah that's what i'm saying yeah you know what, I want to talk about media and the ra and racism that exists within the whole like system, because I feel like this is a conversation I can have for a while. And, and your story, what I got out of your story right now is you as a black woman were able to go out, do the job, do it amazingly, while five other people could not do could not amount to the work that you put out. And that's why I am a big advocate for diversity in newsrooms. Because if we don't have a diverse newsroom, there's going to go a lot of stories that are super important to minority communities that go under the radar. And there was an example of this pretty recently, a very prominent black figure uh, somewhere in part of one of the Chicago neighborhoods passed away. And uh, my white coworkers were like, oh, like, it's just a guy who died. But like, thank God there were people in the black community in the newsroom were like, no, this guy was like, you know, alongside some, some of the top activists in our community. He did so much for our community. And we were the only station that actually profiled him. That's and we were sad. getting yeah, and we were getting so many emails like thank you so much for highlighting the works of this guy and what he did and what he meant to our community. And that's why I feel like 
Now more than ever, we need more diverse voices in the newsroom. I worked in newsrooms that were predominantly white, and I work in a newsroom right now that is like just a rainbow of different like ethnicities and colors and religions. And the type of stories that we cover are drastically different. And you can see newsrooms that have diversity, you can see... I mean, it's prevalent. Like, you can see it in their work. You can see it in the stories that they cover. Yeah. Iman, you're a journalist yourself. What are your thoughts on how important it is to have diversity in these newsrooms? Because for myself, I never really trusted mainstream news media for the simple fact that I always seen white males being the ones who talk about the stories. And so I felt like it was from their perspective. And obviously, we're not all going to share the same perspective. But for you, being a journalist yourself, what are your thoughts on that? I actually just had a, a conversation on my Instagram page about this where diversity in Journalism is great, but only when the people of color, Black people, Indigenous people actually want to uplift each other's voices. Because I've been in newsrooms with like other Black people and like East Asians and South Asians, and it's like I'm the only one bringing up issues that relate to race. And you see that the people of color and Black people who bring up issues pertaining to social justice and race are kind of like pushed out. And then the ones who do the cookie cutter stories, like, I've been on air for five years. If I don't really say this often, but I am one hundred like I'm the first person on Canadian television to wear hijab. Like there without a doubt. And I've never marketed myself that way, specifically because my hijab is not why I became a journalist. Right. But you look at like a lot of other journalists in like all across North America, and the second you kind of push yourself as the hijabi journalist. You get speaking gigs everywhere, you get, they put you on air, but you only ever do the most basic stories. Diversity only works when we're not just there to play a role. Like I'm there to be a journalist and I want to be treated like a journalist. So there was a Twitter thread and like my former colleagues, like they're all like, you know, predominantly either South Asian or East Asian. And they were talking about like their little microaggressions they dealt with at work. I'm like, you guys all were there when I pushed like some of the, like, some pretty big stories, especially from my experience on racial injustice, specifically in school boards. You guys saw how they treated me and you did nothing. You guys are complacent in systemic discrimination when speaking out would disadvantage you. So it's like, I don't really care how many white people or non-white people are in a room. I just care about people's politics and their ethics. And also, I think that's why we need more diversity in the higher up positions, because someone who is diverse and knows knows that I can cover a story on Muslims and not be biased against you know what I'm covering, or I can go and, and talk about something that I might not believe in, but as a reporter and as a journalist, I can still cover that thing uh, without any of my biases interfering. It's so funny to me because like at what point I'm Muslim and I'm Black and issues related to the Muslim community, Black community and immigrant community, it's always like, mm, should the imam be doing this? You know, question mark, asterisk. But like, at what point do we ever question whether or not a white journalist can report on white people? We don't, because that would be yeah. really weird. So I think it's just getting to a point where we normalize that, right? Like, imagine if we didn't allow Christian reporters to report on Easter service. It's just, it's weird, right? They're allowed to be individuals, whereas like, you're questioning my ability to be a journalist. And that to me is like, you know, we're like, you're catching these hands, like we're gonna fight. <laughs> I love you, Amanda. What is your solution to this? Like, what is your ideal solution to this to be able to be able to talk about what you want? And yeah, let's normalize this. You shouldn't have to always come from black or brown voices like it should be just talk about. I think we need to kind of flip the switch a little bit and not like there was um on Instagram there's like this Vogue challenge or whatever it's so funny because it was supposed to be for 
for black women and all of a sudden it was only hijabis and I don't understand but that's why that's what I'm not I, I never I didn't comment on it because I don't know what's going on with the Vogue challenge especially because everybody's speaking against Vogue and a winter so, so that's the thing though like why do we still allow Vogue to have relevance it doesn't exactly it's, <laughs> I like let's invest in essence let's invest in like publications that we kind of sideline as being black magazines as opposed to like Vogue is like, I don't remember the last time I picked up Vogue and I've written for them. Like, they're just not relevant. I'm like, my background is in fashion. I love fashion. But Vogue is like, they're telling you what to think is fashionable when I wouldn't wear half the things most of these editors wear. I used to read Vogue obsessively as a kid, like obsessively. And then I got to this point where I'm like, I literally dress better than these people. Like, I know fashion better. I don't need you to tell me what to do. This is like black fashion that's five years removed from when black people made it cool. So I just, it's not for me, but we still allow them to be an authority voice. And like, the problem is we give them value. We need to take that away and invest it in places that actually care about people. We don't need to be doing a Vogue challenge because if we just made Vogue irrelevant, they wouldn't have the power that they have. Right. So it's truthfully, like we want to be accepted by places. Like it's like, why ask for a seat at the table when you deserve your entire, like your own table, like your ancestors built this table. You have the money to build a table, just build the table, right? Like, I don't like asking for things that I feel like I rightfully deserve. So I'm not going to take it. I'm just going to do it on my own. Exactly. Exactly. We struggle to reserve our seats at these tables and we don't even know. And sometimes most of the time we're either on a wait list or if we're tokenized, we will get that reserved seat filled by one of our people. Most people are saying it's more of a challenge to be able to see people of color and black people on this magazine where you normally might not see yourself as often. I guess that's the whole purpose of this Vogue challenge. I don't know. However, everybody interprets it. To me, I'm just looking at it as a huge picture. I look at the big, bigger picture and I'm like, we should stop giving these people a voice. Like, why are we trying to imagine ourselves on this publication? when we should have already seen that hundreds of thousands of our own people on this publication in the first place. And like you said, there's a lot of Black-owned magazines like Essence and all those. Like like you said, we should up, be uplifting those instead of feeding Vogue more publicity when they absolutely don't need it. Also, like, you know, social media has made magazines irrelevant. Like, I can do editorials myself. Like, if you have the creative direction, you really don't need to be... Like, who buys magazines anymore? You see the cover of it on Instagram, right? So it's like you have the platform, you can grow your audience, and you can, like, tap into an amazing network of, like, Black creators and just constantly be resharing each other's work. And, like, there are... It's like when we kept... Like, police brutality. Like, this is the first time we're actually talking about, like, defunding the police. We've been saying this for how many years, right? And we just got there. Before it was like diversity training, hire black police officers, do all these things. That doesn't work. You just need to get rid of it, right? Exactly. Like, so like they're not going to fire every single person at Vogue, every single person who's been complacent with the editor, like Anna Wintour's, you know, anti-black racism, homophobia, whatever, like they all need to be fired. It's not a single person. And it's when I say top down, that's great. But I literally mean everyone who is complacent and allowed for this to happen because that mentality is going to continue. That's way too much work. Just get rid of the entire magazine at this point, right? So I agree with that. Like, honestly, we're, we're taking these baby steps at this point. We we don't have time for baby steps. We're risking human lives at this point, especially black lives. Just get get it done. Get it out of here because I'm just sick and tired, and especially defunding the police. I can't believe, like, so many people, and it's true when I read that meme. Like, it's like you guys are going crazy over us talking about def- proposing to defund the police, but nobody has said anything about defunding education. But you can sit here and go blue in the face and protect all these Blue Lives Matter stuff. It's like I, 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 I don't understand. I will never understand. But at the same 
same time, it's like you're, we can't waste our energy trying to convince everybody. We just have to use the resources that we have to start this process and to just literally defund the police. It's all in language, right? Like it's, it's not defunding education, it's budget cuts because we're poor and we're going to have a deficit. And the other option is raising taxes. So like, why don't we frame defunding the police that way? It's literally all in our language. And it's just, it's painful when people don't understand it. Because I'm like, this is so obvious. Like it's not... It's like even like using the word um, looting as opposed to rioting, that's strategic so that they get insurance money, right? Like mm. why are all, why aren't we using, why aren't we using rioting, right? Like I saw this tweet on Twitter that actually, you know, made me start thinking. It was talking about how like the Tulsa massacre, they called it rioting, right? And that was strategic to not allow black business owners to collect insurance money you know it sounds like a conspiracy theory but it's literally american history there are court documents that show this you can just read like literally open a book it's there and it's like if you disagree with me find me facts that tell me i'm wrong because i can show you the facts that are printed in court documents that tell me i'm right no i'm, I'm with you on that one everything is so strategic honestly and it's just so scary like you kind of almost have to keep thinking 10 steps ahead like it, it's it's tiresome but you always have to keep thinking 10 steps ahead but even just little things like that just these words like looting and rioting people don't think twice about but it, look how much of an impact it makes on businesses cheryl harris she's a i believe that's her name i'd be really embarrassed if i called her the wrong name right now she's a harvard law professor i believe no ucla professor harvard law educated she wrote this article in like 1993 or this law review article called whiteness as property. It's pretty long, but I recommend everybody read it. It specifically talks about how our definition of property and ownership was intentionally designed to exclude native Americans, right? Like it was, uh, and like, this is still how we apply the law. You can't communally own land. It has to be owned by an individual. It needs to be owned consistently. And when you think about like that in terms of application, that's, that only applies to people who live a Eurocentric life, right? Like even like when it comes to like Arab culture, African culture, like you own things together as a family. You don't own things individually. That is always going to disadvantage you because the only people who have individualistic ways of living are not us. It's not racism. It's the entire American legal framework that needs to be like changed at this point. And we base all of our laws. I say we like I'm American. I'm Canadian, but Canada also. Yeah. <laughs> we base all of our laws on history. History is racist. So what are we doing still? You know, when people say like culture and tra or tradition and value, like our traditional values, they literally just mean white supremacy. Like that's what you have to hear. What is it called again, man? Because I would love to read that. Oh, whiteness is property. I'll send it to you. It's amazing. Our, our history is racist, but we're still following the laws that our forefathers created hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Like a constitution that was intentionally designed to allow and legalize slavery and was designed to create a slave race. How many of the, was it like half of the founding fathers owned slaves? Like I always laugh when people, okay, this is kind of a side thing, but like, you know how like people, Islamophobes are always like, they talk about Prophet Muhammad and like use like, he like, he married a nine year old, he married a 12 year old, yeah. he did this. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson was literally raping Sally, Sally Hemming, right? That was her name, Sally Hemming? Wow, that's From so the true. age of 13, the age of 13. Prophet Muhammad was the year 500, right? 562? This is in the 1700s. <laughs> There's a picture of the, his face. Is, his face is one of the one on Mount Rushmore, right? I'm so Canadian. It's really painful. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. <laughs> but it's like, why are we not talking about that? We literally have a pedophile as one of our national monuments. And it's just, uh, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on these things. And I'm like, you people are just, you're not even stupid, you're intentional. 
100%. Oh my God. I love you, man. The things that look, you're always, everything you say is so mind blowing. And I'm like, we know this stuff, but it's just like, it's almost like, connect the dots. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's all all you have to do because it's like you, uh, yeah, I've seen that so many times, all these Islamophobes, they always attack our prophet. And it's just, it's like, oh my God, like you don't even want to even kind of go head to head with them because of how stupid they are. And then you realize like, there's just so much that we can attack them with, 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 what you just said basically it, it's like they talk about how like oh he didn't rape her they had a loving relationship and she had all of you know let's not even talk about the power dynamic right between like she was a person who he enslaved okay yes. and then a founding father forget all that the age difference it's wild to me what like people are not they will make like the most illogical arguments and like really scream things with their chest and i'm like but like why are we not we need to teach our history the right way also as Muslims, you know, like we need to, cause I mean, I remember being like 13, 14, 15 years old and hearing that I'm like, Oh, I don't know. The justification is that for that. Like, Oh, it was a long time ago. Sure. But it's like, you look at history and this has literally always happened. Like it's not a weird thing that happened in Islam. It's like a consistent, the year 500 is very different than the year 1700. So. And this brings me to just like, even your mental health, Iman, like having to deal with all this. And I, we've asked this question to the man's as well, but I think we don't talk often about the mental health within the black community. And it's like, what are your thoughts about that? And just general, what's the first thing that you think about when it comes to the mental health within the black community? So for me, personally, I rely a lot on Dean. Like, it's like remembering that, like, close to the Yom Qiyamah, like, it's going to be hard to tell what's the truth. And, like, people who are not leaders are going to be leaders. Um, and then I just remind myself that I'm well-read and I'm right. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. It's like, Mashallah. I know what I'm talking about. I read a lot. I educate myself. It's very easy to be disillusioned when people, like, it's like the narrative is Black people need to get over slavery, Black people this, black and black crime, whatever, whatever, and it's kind of like, actually, no, like, none of that is real. Like, these are all things that you say. It's like, <laughs> going back to uh, the, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the US and, you know, founding fathers and all that fun stuff, the justifications that they gave for slavery are exactly what you're reading now with black on black crime. Like, they knew slavery was immoral. They knew it was sinful and that it went against like it went against the words of the Declaration of Independence, right? And the way they justified it is by saying things like, we're actually making black people better by enslaving them because in Africa, they didn't have all of these things. So we're making, it's like through these punishments and forcing them to work, they're becoming better Christians and better this, and we're actually saving them. And <laughs> there was this one uh, one case that I'm like obsessed with. It's called Invention of a Slave. This guy wanted, this white guy wanted to own the invention of this uh, black man that he had enslaved. And he was like, if it wasn't for slavery, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't have the intelligence to create anything. And therefore, because I enslaved him, I have rights for his work. And I'm like, literally, when I hear people talk about black on black crime, that's exactly what I hear. These aren't new things. Like, we need to take time to talk to our elders also. We, like, you know, if you don't have, if reading isn't your thing, if digging into history isn't your thing, take the time to talk to, like, the people who've been fighting for this, the people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, who are not going to have for a long time, because the government, the state, they're, they're, it's the exact same thing they're doing again and again and again. And because we have this arrogance within us where we feel like, you know, they never got rid of this. It's, we have to do it now. They clearly didn't know what they were doing. It's like, actually, they pro- like they did the best they could. And we need to learn from their setbacks and like how they were disadvantaged so that we understand and we're educated when we're going to like, I don't, I'm sick of being offensive response. Like our offense is still defense. Right. And I'm really tired of that. I'm tired of responding to things like this needs to be a strategic 
all like systemic, full out, every single area of our lives, like of tackling of discrimination. It's not like a, okay, let's be out in these streets. It's like, who's in the boardrooms? Who's in the medical, who's in the offices? Who's in, um, who's in the hospital? Who's in the, like the court? Like I need everything. Who's teaching our kids? Who's approving these education, uh, the curriculum? Who's making our clothing? Who's making our hair care products because they're putting toxins in black women's hair care products, right? Like it's like, we're in every single field. We need to attack discrimination from every single field. It's it's not just black and white. There's just so much work that needs to be done. But it's true because it's like we do need to learn from our elders. And I always just say, like, talk to your grandparents. Like, they have so many stories. And it's like you don't want them to take these stories to their graves. And they never got to tell them. Like, we can learn so much. And it's true. Every generation has a setback. We can't just sit here and say, well, it's up to us. We're going to be the ones that, you know, change everything. No, every generation is going to have its setback. But we need to be able to work together and we have to do this and and it's just like I I just have a lot of hope I really do because I feel for the first time everybody's finally waking up even though black voices have been saying this for the longest like something's not right this is there's so much racism within our um, justice system and everything in, in between from education to prisons to everything so it's like it, it's super important that we keep these conversations going it's super important that I feel like on social media, things are dying down a little bit. People are going back to quote unquote normal content. And it really bothers me because it's like, I feel like that we're still living in an era. We're still living in, in a time where racism is, you know, it's still thriving. You know what I mean? These protests are incredible. Everything that's happening is incredible, but we have to keep doing the work. It's not something that's just going to trend for a week and we're done with it. We're talking about actual human lives. Yeah. I was about to say Black Lives Matter isn't a trend. It's not just a hashtag. It goes beyond that. And I feel like one of the things that I've, I've learned throughout the past few weeks is the importance of history. And like you're saying, read, know where it started and how it started and how we can dismantle it. I feel like that's the big, I mean, we talked about the 13th Amendment, like that's something that I had no idea was even in existence because nobody taught me that in schools. We need to, like you said, I said, dismantle it from the very beginning and work our way up. It's going to be a lot of work, but I think, like you were saying, Danielle, I'm hopeful that it can happen because everyone is speaking out now and to Amanda's point it doesn't even have to be just a black history teacher it should be every history teacher like this is actual history like why are we leaving the most important parts out why do we have to wait for a person of color or a black person to say these things and educate us about this you know we're softening american history so that it's more appealing it's exactly what the founding fathers did with the declaration of independence right like part of the reason that like this is again and i've read the founding fathers diaries this is you can go look this up it's not fact check me by all means but it's like they literally talked about how they had to declare independence from great britain because great britain was appalled with chattel slavery this wasn't necessarily a freedom fight this was also in part a, a fight to be allowed to have this type of slavery right so it's like declaration of independence was specifically designed to not specifically designed but motivated by a desire to continue this abhorrent type of slavery that really the world has never seen before, right? Like people weren't slaves for the rest of their lives. That is a uniquely American thing. You can say slavery happens in every part of the world, but the U.S. through law and systemic discrimination tried to create a slave race and make it so that you were permanently a slave. That's why it's so terrifying, right? So... 
Oh my gosh, man. I could talk to you for hours about this stuff because you're always educating me. Even through your snaps. I love your snaps because you're always... My family is sick of me talking about this. So by all means, call me whenever you want. Please, because <laughs> you're always spitting facts. And I honestly always learn so much from you. It's just things that we have to really awaken ourselves to and open our eyes to. And I just want to thank you so much for even just jumping on this call with us, for doing this conversation with us. Because right now I know it's, it's a lot to take in what's going on in the world. Like this isn't some light stuff that we can just, like I said, make it a trend or let it blow over this is for once in our lives like we're seeing a lot of changes alhamdulillah we're seeing some things like actually these protests are really making a difference and just people always continuously speaking out it's truly making a difference like the power of our voices we can never truly underestimate the power of our voices but i really really want to thank you iman i really love you i'm so glad that we've crossed paths a long time ago we've been wanting you to come on and it's unfortunate that it's under these circumstances but just know you always have a voice on this platform if you ever want to share anything Thank you. I love talking to you guys. Um, I'm so sad this took a year to put together, but hunted out we're here now and inshallah we can make this a more regular thing. Girl, you're always in school. I'm like, this is such a boss. Girl. Every time we reached out, you're like, uh, school finals. I'm like, yeah, seriously, like I feel so bad. It was constant finals. Like they were trying to kill yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this girl, like when she's always studying. It's just and it, but mashallah, like you're incredible. We need more voices like you, especially in the courtrooms and wherever. You you're basically you're in journalism, you're in like you you're becoming a lawyer, mashallah, and you're in fashion. Like, like, I just love how much you're spreading yourself, but to the point where, like, there is a powerful voice in all of these, I guess, these segments or whatever you want to call them, fields. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I've never wanted to do just one thing. And for me, fashion, law, and journalism kind of all intersect. It's all about storytelling. Like, fashion is art. Art is meant to be political. Law is politics. And journalism is telling the stories that actually matter and making those changes through the law. So... I'm a control freak. I needed to do it all. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You're Michelle. just, yeah, she's just somebody that always thinks ahead and that you would never think to just like the, all those three things kind of correlate go with together, one another yeah. or go with one another. But we love you so much, Iman. Thank love you so much. I can't wait for it. Until everybody you. listens to this episode. There's just so many amazing gems that you dropped and inshallah, we can continue educating ourselves, continue unlearning and learning. It's going to be a process, but it's definitely worth it. And we all have to come together. Inshallah. Thank you, girl. Inshallah. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a little over a month since the murder of George Floyd and so much has happened in that you know four week span. There has been protests every single day since his death and I think that's something that we need to acknowledge. You know the fact that we've seen something happen so many times and we've reached the last straw. You know people aren't aren't going to handle this anymore. They're not going to take it. They're not going to accept it. And, you know, we have these like little triumphs, I think, that are happening. Even something as simple as the fact that they're taking Aunt Jemima off the bottles of syrup. We have so many little things of racism and systematic racism exists. And we're seeing it now come to the surface and things are being pointed out. We're like, okay, this absolutely needs to change. And it's things I feel like we didn't realize before, at least someone who's coming from a place of, you know, not being a part of the black community. I never realized that Aunt Jemima is racist. And it really is. Once we point it out, it really is 
such a racist character. I think there's just a lot of microaggressions that we have also implemented in our lives that we didn't even know about. But then when you really sit down and like you said, you really focus and you see that, oh my God, I didn't know that, you know, I was part of the problem. Honestly, we talk about how we can extend our anti-black contributions beyond the dinner table discussions. Because now most of you, I'm hoping a majority of you have had the discussion with your family members as to what's going on in the world, how we can be an ally, how we can be accomplice to the, the black community. And again, that's beyond the dinner table what can we do now and I think you know just because we're like quote-unquote people of color doesn't mean that we share the same trials and tribulations as a black community and I think for the first time ever we realize that we're not excused from what they have been facing we're actually also part of the problem it's not always the white Karens that are the the problems and the ones that are or the problem and they're not the only ones that are calling the cops and whatnot I feel like there's a lot that our community can do and alhamdulillah I feel like we are slowly trying our best to obviously stand alongside the black community but what actions are we taking you can stand in solidarity but i asked iman this question in the episode but what does it mean to stand in solidarity how do we how do we actually showcase that we are with the black community and not just doing it for the trend or doing it for social media absolutely and i think it's really important i've seen so many people on social media kind of step up and say you know what like I was wrong in the past like I've said things I've did things and now I'm realizing yeah I'm I should have realized this decades ago I'm an adult and I should have realized this so long ago but people are owning up to their racism they're taking they're making that change and I think that's a very important thing that once you realize hey I am part of the problem what can I do to solve this what can I do to change myself and the people around me I think that is a big step in the right direction. And in this episode, just like the other ones, we talked about mental health in the black community. And studies honestly show that exposure to racism, such as killings of unarmed black men by police, can harm the mental health of black Americans. Yes, it maybe didn't happen to your specific family member, but seeing somebody who looks like you or who looks like your brother or your father and you can see them on TV just getting murdered like that, of course it's going to do something to you. Like witnessing violence against someone else can be as damaging as experiencing yourself. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that. I think it's really important to reach out to your black friends. Don't just associate associate yourself with black people when you want to say, oh, I'm not racist. I have black friends. But when was the last time you checked up on your black friends? When's the last time you called them up and seen how they're doing? I think, you know, the black community is not given the luxury of being able to overcome their trauma or to heal from their trauma because they're facing one trauma after the next. No, and you're right. And I, I can't imagine what it is to be a, a child, a black child right now in this day and age and watching you know, people who look like your brothers, look like your dad, look like your uncle, look like your mom, murdered senselessly by people who are supposed to protect you. And I think you're right, focusing on mental health is something that we need to urge them to do and kind of help them achieve that. Inshallah, you guys enjoyed this episode. Inshallah, we can have many more people like Iman, Ramaz, Jael, and more. I think we had just such very important discussions, and we want to continue these discussions. Again, like, it's incredible to see these protests still going on. And the news might not be reporting them. I haven't seen on CNN too much. But, yeah, it's still out there. There's still protests happening to this day every single day. Every single day. Inshallah, we can continue, you know, standing alongside our black community and being there for them and all of us standing with one another. You know, I, I think us minorities, it's now more than ever that we need to put our differences aside and come together because there's just so much power in numbers so i really hope you guys enjoyed this episode and inshallah we can catch you guys next week bye